Heavenly Father, as we um, hear your word preached to us and as I preach it, Lord, I pray that I would be faithful to your text and that we would have ears to hear what is happening and hearts to receive it. I pray that through faith we would trust in you and rejoice in uh, your son and know what it is to live uh, waiting for your son Jesus to return. Amen. I don't know if any of the, the, the bit of Romans 7 that Hannah read, those last bits resonated with you slightly. There's, there's words in there that Paul says towards the end of that chapter. He says things like this in verse 15. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. For what I hate, I do. Yeah, do you have a feeling? I don't understand what I'm doing. Like, what I, I want to do stuff, and then I don't do it. And there's other stuff that I, I don't want to do, and I end up doing it. Like, I wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to do this, and lo and behold, I do that instead, and that's not good. You know, I think today will be the day that I live, like, really well. I won't get cross and grumpy with people. I'll try and live a holy life. And then I find out, shortly later, that I'm cross and grumpy with people and not doing as I, as I, as I thought I would do. That, like, conflict of going, I know what I should do. It's not actually hard to often know what you should do. I just can't seem to get myself to do it. Even though I know it will be better for me, I can't seem to make myself do it. I don't just mean in the sense of, like, you wake in the morning and think, today I'll go for a run, and then you don't do it. I, I get that thing. But I mean more in the sense of, like, what's what's morally right and good. Like, I know what I should do. Like, I know I shouldn't lose my temper with someone, and yet I find myself doing it. I mean, Paul says this a lot of this times in this, in this chapter here. Again, in verse 19, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Uh, and then he goes further down. He goes, um, uh, in verse 22, In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do what's good and right and wonderful. Um, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of the sin at work within me. So I, I, I want to do God's holy like, rule. I want to obey him. I want to listen to him. And yet I find internally this conflict that I end up doing what I don't want to do. His conclusion is this. What a wretched man that I am. What a wretched woman that I am, you might say. Isn't that like a... Do you get that? You know that sensation? You know that kind of thing of like, oh man, I can't believe I've done that thing again. The thing I said I wouldn't do again, that I promised I wouldn't do again, I failed at it. Um, we want to be like good and holy, and we want to be patient, we want to be kind, we want to be loving, and we find ourselves we're, we're not doing good, we're not being holy. We're being impatient, we're being unloving, we're being um, angry and frustrated with people. All the things we don't want to do. Today you wake up and think, right, today is the day that I will um, not fall into this trap of sin. There's, there's something I always do that I hate doing, and yet we find ourselves falling into it too. You might have in your head a particular thing that is going on in your life right now, a particular sinful pattern of behavior, something that you just know is wrong and you know you shouldn't be doing, and yet you cannot get out of the cycle of doing it. You go, right, there is something I know I don't want to do. There's a website I know I shouldn't look at. There's a thing I shouldn't spend money on. There's a person I shouldn't be cross with. There's someone else who, who tempts me to do something. I should not do these things. I'm going to take a stand and not do it anymore. And the end of the day, as wretched man that I am, I have done the same thing all over again. Yeah, I, I'm not alone here, right? We know that kind of sensation. Um, and I suggest that, the, that almost the longer you walk in Christian life, the more you sometimes feel these things, because you recognize more things that you do that are sinful. Um, in this passage, Paul wants to kind of deal with this, because in one sense, so far in Romans, he's got to the point where he's like, look, you're dead to sin, you're alive in Jesus, you used to be a slave to sin, now you're a slave to righteousness. So you might be thinking like, hang on a second, Paul, it doesn't feel like that at times, does it? I still feel like I'm enslaved to sin. I still feel like I'm doing these kind of things. Um, and there's this conflict going on in us as people. There's this internal like, war being waged. And Paul describes it as between, kind of the, 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 like he talks about having one mind upon God's law and one mind upon uh, another law instead, of being like, in the flesh, in like, a body at one point, and then, but being with God in other points. 
The other way in Romans is like being with Adam, that first human, or being with Jesus, and this battle going on there. Paul's not saying it's like we have a really good soul that God's rescued and we have a really bad body and the body's physical thing's bad and our soul's good. He's not saying that. He's saying that we as a person are a mess of good and bad. That, that our old nature, that what we, we were born into, this sinfulness, is still with us. Even though God has saved us, if we trust in Jesus and he saved us, we're a new person and yet that old person still remains. And there's like a battle here. Again, it's not like that thing where you have an angel and a devil on the shoulder, you know, those cartoons, and one's saying, oh, do the horrible thing. No, do the good thing. It's saying that actually we ourselves are like that internally. Like we, we, we kind of love God and want to do good, and yet our old self, which is still us, pulls us away and pulls us back towards uh, doing things that we, we shouldn't want to do. Think of it in terms of like a time scale. So when you trust in Jesus and ask him for forgiveness, you are saved as a, like an empirical done thing. Like, Jesus looks at you and goes, yes, you're saved, you're declared righteous, and at the end of time when he returns, um, you'll be resurrected and entirely new and perfect. And in the meantime, that process is ongoing, right? So you're definitely saved, and you will be saved, but that being saved now has this, like, ambiguous, frustrating nature where, where you're like, I know I'm righteous and good and God's made me, but I also know at the same time I'm still living like my old life, and we fight this battle within ourselves about how we will live um, and this language of battle is rich in scripture like it, it occurs here uh, elsewhere Paul says fight the good fight of faith not like play the good game of faith or you know I don't know have the good holiday of faith it's like fight it's a, it's a war that you're fighting uh, this battle and particularly the question he wants to think about here and then again in Romans 8 which we'll see in the next couple of weeks is, is how do you fight this and there are two possible ways he says you can fight this battle of how do you live uh, a, 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 as a person who is drawn between this conflict of the old person and the new person, how do you live? And there's one way you can live, which is by trying to obey the rules and the laws and by uh, doing good deeds. And the other way is by, through the Spirit, by faith. And Paul says the first way does not work, is fatal will kill you. That's what he says. Do not do that first way. You're rescued from doing that, but do not try and do that way of keeping the rules. And, and doing good works. Now, that sounds backwards, because surely we should keep the rules, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this first bit of Romans 7 to understand what's going on there, and then we'll see how then we should live and try and live by faith. But just a note before we just look at the first bits. Um, Peter, as in the guy who um, uh, hung up with Jesus on earth for at least three years, was a disciple and a close follower of Jesus, also wrote some letters like Paul. And in his second letter that we have, we have record of, Peter says at the end of it, now, our brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures in, to their own destruction. So, so Peter's saying that Paul writes scripture to you. So when we say this is the word of the Lord, that's true. It's, it's scripture we're reading here. But he also says that Paul can be quite hard to understand at times. And if Peter can say that, then I think that's probably true of us as well. So it's okay to read bits of Paul and go, I have no clue what's going on here. There are bits in this. I'd love to think that Peter's thinking of this passage when he wrote that thing. He says bits of Paul are hard to understand. I'd love to think he's, he's thinking of Romans 7. So um, that's just a, a sense in which we will, we will scratch the surface of this, ask me questions about it over coffee afterwards. But I want to just get in our heads that Paul is saying stuff that... that to show us that trying to keep the law and to do good works is not a good thing, but a fatal thing. And there's another way of living by faith. So um, if you have a Bible, keep it open, uh, or turn to Romans 7. It's page 1070. Um, and, and I want to 
just explain to me what I mean by that word law, because it's used in multiple ways. But um, think of it like this. When God created the world, he made it with, with good in it, right? And so there are things that we can do that are good. And when people sin, they also kind of say, well, there's things we can do that are not good, that are evil. And, and things like murder is evil. And we all know that, right? Anyone, Christian or not, knows that murder is wrong. If someone likes to pretend that murder is um, a, a, a good thing, it's fine. Try and murder them and see what they think after that, okay? They'll soon agree that murder is wrong. Or if they say, oh, stealing's fine, steal less stuff, and they'll soon change their mind. So there's certain kind of like universal laws that God has put in place the world over that, that say this is what is good and what is wrong. Um, and in one sense, everyone knows that. They might repress that truth. This is what Romans 1 and 2 says. They might try and hide that truth away or pretend it doesn't exist. But there are laws that exist across there. But to one particular people, to God's people, to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, he gave particular rules and laws. He gave rules like the Ten Commandments. And then all those laws you get about like dietary requirements, don't eat pig or shellfish or um, don't wear mixed cloth, the things in Leviticus. That's specific rules, and we call that the law of Moses because Moses... It came through Moses to the people. Um, and this law was on God's people to kind of keep them in check and to teach them to look forward to the coming of Jesus. But Paul says here in Romans 7, verses 1 to kind of like 7, this law no longer has any authority over you if you're a Jew. And, and, and if you're not a Jew, it's no longer authority of you, especially in one sense. Because he says, he gives the example like this. He says in verse 2, example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. And if her husband dies, she's released. So if your husband dies, you're no longer married anymore. So she can then get remarried, and that's fine. You know, and we know people, lots of us here will know people who have remarried after their partner has died, and that's a good thing. We might have been to their weddings, and we've celebrated it. And so it says in verse 3, so if this woman marries another man while her husband is still alive, that's adultery. But if her husband's dead, it's not adultery anymore. And he's saying this as a picture. He's saying in the same way, like if, if you die, the law doesn't apply to you anymore. The contract's finished, you're dead. And he's saying, we died with Jesus, so our contract, our agreement with the old law is dead and finished, it's done. That old law doesn't apply to us. And we were raised to life with Jesus instead. So that's why he says about that, that kind of old law there. So if people say to you, oh, why do you think, why as you're a Christian, do you eat shrimp or do you eat pork or do you eat, have mixed garments? You go, well, that law's gone it's 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 served its purpose and it's finished we've died to that law doesn't apply anymore murder is still wrong though like adultery is still wrong he's not saying that's fine because those things are always been like rules and, and god has made them all and we can use the old law to teach us what is good and right and proper but those laws like the kind of the you know the stuff about shellfish and stuff that is finished and done with but but paul says something which is probably more relevant for us that is really interesting because he says in verse five he says when we were controlled by our sinful nature um, the sinful passions aroused by the law at work with us. Just I want to, one thing from that. It's complex, like I said. But one thing is, he says, sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law somehow stirs up our sinful passions. The law, in one sense, makes us more sinful, which is weird. Surely the law makes you a good person. If you have good rules, you'll be a good person. But he's saying, no, the law somehow makes it that you actually do more evil. So in verse 7, he says, look, what should we say then? Is the law sinful? No. Nonetheless, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. He said, Unless, until the law appeared, there are certain things we didn't know that were sinful. Um, if you are uh, like in, in um, Lintorp Cemetery, right, there is a sign up saying dogs must be kept on a lead. If you haven't seen that sign, you might take your dog off a lead and let it run around there. But then you see the sign and go, oh, I didn't realize that was a thing. And now the law's come in there to tell you you must keep your dog on a lead. 
So now if you let your dog off the lead, you're doing two things wrong. First of all, you're letting your dog off your lead, and you're disobeying the, presumably the middles of a council, right? Because that's the rule they've set. So the law has come in place, and now you're actually, um, you, you know what the sin is, but if you break it, it's become even worse for you too. It's, it's because you're now breaking like two things, both the law and the thing that the law is talking about. So, it's, so the law comes in and shows us what sin is, but also it stirs up to even more so. Um, think of it like this. Imagine you, um, your office or your place of work, that you go every single day, right? Or if you're a teacher, your staff room, or if you're, I don't know, you work in a shop somewhere there. And probably there's somewhere there's a button you've seen, like a switch, you've never even thought about. Now imagine there's a red sign around the button now saying, do not press. Instantly you want to press it. That's how it works. That's how we are as sinful people. We see the big red button and go, oh, I wonder what happens when I press that. Until this point in time, you've never thought about it. But the big red sign makes you go, I want to say what happens. if I, It says don't press, but now I want to say it. You know, um, uh, I remember once when I was a teenager, there was a, you know, those railway platforms, a sign saying don't walk to the end of the platform past this sign. So obviously what do you do? You walk past the sign because I look at me. I've walked past the sign. I'm being, if there's a sense that humans being sinful see laws and go, I'm going to break that. That's what I'm going to do. And that's not saying the laws are bad. The laws are a good thing. But they stir up in us, because we, we're wicked people, and by nature we do things that are wrong. They stir in us the opportunity to do further wrong things. So God gives the best possible law to his people, and yet it seems to stir up more evil in them. They do, they do more good. That's true of every law that exists. Um, like it's good to have laws. They prevent people from doing stuff. But, but in one sense, it stirs up to, to think of other things we can do that are wrong. Um, and so this is why Paul's so clear that trying to obey laws to make us live good life doesn't help. So we say, I want to fight this, this perpetual sin in my life I can't defeat. I will create more laws and rules to stop myself from doing it. But those things don't actually work. It's a bit like um, fighting a, a fire with a water pistol. No, no, it's like fighting a fire with a water pistol filled with petrol. Like you just spray it and it makes it more worse. Or, um, uh, have you... This is a Thanksgiving tradition. If you watch on the internet, you'll see people trying to deep fry a turkey. And you know what happens when you put, like, wet things in, in, in hot fat? They just explode everywhere. And that's the kind of what it's like. Like, we, we, we try and put out a fire by pouring water onto it. And that's, uh, an, sorry, we put out an oil fire by putting water onto it. It just explodes and makes things worse. Trying to stop ourselves from sinning by introducing more laws and rules doesn't actually rescue us. doesn't actually help us fight against sin. Let me give you another example of this. Paul says in chapter 7, in verse 7, he says, I wouldn't have really known what a coveting was if the law hadn't said you shan't covet. Um, coveting is the idea that you see something and you think, if I had that, I would be happy. So you kind of go, oh, I like, I'm, I, you see, I don't know, you, you walk past an estate agent and you see a house, you go, ooh, that house has got like a big extension on the back. If I had that extension, I'd be happy. I would have more space, I'd be happy. Um, or you kind of think, oh, if I had a new car, I'd be happy, or a new phone, or whatever that is. There's something you think, if only I had that, I would be satisfied. Now, obviously, that's not true. You wouldn't be if you had that. You'd want more. Um, but that's what coveting is. It's, it's saying, I want my satisfaction in something outside of what God has given me. It's saying, I'm not happy with what God has given me. I want more. There's nothing wrong with necessarily getting a new house or a car or a phone. You might need them. But when it becomes this desire that takes over us, that's what becomes this coveting. And you look at other people and go, why has God given them that and not me? Um, so, so, so you could introduce laws to try and prevent yourself from doing this. You could like put like, um, 
blockers on your computer to stop you visiting certain websites. You could uh, like kind of say, all right, I'm going to um, like restrict my access to my bank account, destroy my credit cards, those kind of things. Make these rules in place to stop you doing it, and you still find loopholes, find ways of getting around it all. Um, say you say there's someone who struggles with gambling, going on gambling websites. Then what they might do is go, they can uh, like block those websites, and, and they can tell a friend, and they can um, register with a government scheme to prevent them from using them. And that's a good thing to do, but you soon find people find ways around these things, and they find ways of breaking these laws and rules. They don't actually do any, have any power to restrain the flesh. This is what the, the, the language that Paul uses elsewhere in Colossians. He says we can make these rules up, um, and, and, and we can say the rules like don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, and these rules might have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining ourselves and restraining our, us from sinning. Um, let me give you one more example of this. Say there is one thing that you know you shouldn't be doing on the internet. I'll leave it at that what that is. But there's some website you know you shouldn't be going on. Whether that's a gambling one or, or, or things you shouldn't be watching or whatever that is. There's something that you try and avoid. Or it's a shopping website where you just spend loads of money to make yourself happy. There's something you I know I shouldn't go on this one. And so in the morning you wake up going, today is a day, I will not do that. So I'll, put some, I'll, I'll block stuff on my phone. I will um, you know, try and avoid going on my computer as I absolutely have to. I will uh, you know, like kind of make a really rigorous thing. I'll, I'll make sure I, I check my bank accounts. I do all that kind of stuff to stop me doing it. But then you find you have to use your computer for other reasons. You have to go and book some train tickets or whatever. And then you also you find, almost without thinking about it, your, your, your hands have like opened up a new browser window, and you're like browsing to the website. You go, no, I won't do that. I'll close it. I'm going to try and fight this really hard. I'm going to try and make sure I don't do this sort of stuff. And then you find later on, the same thing's happening. It's just almost like appeared. Like almost, you know that feeling? It's almost like magically appeared, but you've just instinctively done it. Um, you've just kind of opened the new window or whatever it is. And you think, no, I won't do this at all. Um, and you keep on battling, but eventually... Two things will happen. One is you'll give in. You go, I can't fight this. I don't have the power to. And I've ended up going on this website I shouldn't do. I've watched something. I've bought something. I've covered something. Whatever that is on this website. Woe is me. And you feel just miserable and, and awful. Or you somehow, in your own power, manage to stop yourself from doing it. And then you feel really proud. Look at me. I'm, I've done it. I've achieved it. I've worked really hard and done it all. But that pride is itself a sin. That is not a good thing to have. And it just sets us up for one day failing it. One day you will not be able to keep these rules. But there is another way of fighting the battle of sin. If you look down there, um, uh, sorry, where is it? Verse 6. He says, Paul says, uh, By dying to once bound us, we have been released from the, from the law, so that we may now serve in the new way of the spirits, and not in the old way of the written code. So he contrasts his old way of the written code of, of trying to obey laws all the time and failing, and a new way of trusting in God through the Spirit. I don't mean there is like a way of particularly getting the Holy Spirit in us so that we never sin, that we're, like we're guided like a robot by the Spirit and we avoid doing these things. That's not, not what's going on there. I don't think there's a way of having the Spirit in us in such a manner that, that we never sin and live perfectly. I think it's just, he, it's just the way of the Spirit in the same way he talks about faith, this idea of trusting God's promises with the Spirit at work in us so that he enables us to fight the fight of faith and to trust in God. Let me give you, um, imagine that situation again. You wake up in the morning and there's a website you don't want to do because you look at because you know it'll be bad for you. There's something you don't want to buy or don't want to see. Instead, it's this idea, it starts with praying to God and saying, look, I trust in you to deliver me from this. To remember by faith that God makes promises to you. 
Things like, blessed are the pure of heart, then they will know God. Like, as in, I can trust this promise that if my heart is pure, I will know God to a greater depth. Or Jesus saying, like, I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me, I will feed. Say, so actually, I don't need stuff because I have Jesus. Those are promises that are true. And we hold on to them through the Spirit and say, no, I want this promise for me, Lord. I, I, I need this. Let me believe this instead of something else. Let me believe that what I have from you is enough. Um, and then when we do win that battle, it's we tr- it's we're thankful to God because it's him who's won the battle for us. And if we fail, we go, well, it's fine because Jesus' grace is enough. We're wretched, yes, I know that wretchedness, but it's not that despair of, oh, I hate my life, I want to die, what an awful person, I'm a terrible Christian. Instead, it's going, actually, oh, I failed again, and yet Jesus is so good and he's forgiven me. And, and once more again, I'll fight this battle trusting in his promises to me and in his power at work in me. And I'll be able to confess that because I know that he forgives me and he loves me. And I'm not going to hide it as a shameful thing because I know it's a battle I'm facing and I have to fight about. Do you see the difference in that? One is like a guilt-ridden trying to keep this for your own um, um, power. And one is this trusting God to deliver us. The, 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 the trying to do it in your own power is death. It will kill you over time. You won't be able to do it and you'll collapse and fall apart and you'll just go, I can't do this anymore. I don't want anything to do with it. But that trusting and faith is just a deeper relationship with God of knowing more, of leaning on his promises more. Um, I'll, I'll finish with this. It's very providential that this service has fallen on the, this passage, sorry, has fallen on the first Sunday of Advent. Advent in the church calendar um, is that waiting for Jesus, both his first coming as a baby into Bethlehem, but also his return as the Lord of glory who will come and he will rescue us, who will finally liberate us from these bodies that we disobey continually. It's, uh, that is a one promise that this week we can cling on to, that when we fail and sin, one day Christ will return and will have dealt with this. There'll be no more sense of wretched man, wretched woman that I am. That will be done. It will say, no, I'm just with Jesus. So that, if you want one promise this week to cling on to, cling on to that hope of Advent that Christ will return. And this battle will be over. He's already won it for you in that you're going to be with him. And daily as we fight, we hold on to that promise that Christ will come back. And we, we trust in that. We look to that, knowing that one day, no longer will we say, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am. But we will say, you know, thanks be to God who's delivered me from Christ Jesus. Amen.